In today's episode of Technology Together, we have with us Dr. Linus Kendall, who specializes in interactive system design and teaches a course on human-computer interaction at IIIT Bangalore. His research focuses on ICTs, development, sustainability, and climate change with a particular interest in agriculture in West Bengal, India. Hi, I'm Swati, your host for today's episode of Technology Together, a podcast from IIIT Bangalore that nurtures pluralistic conversations on how digital technologies can work better for a complex society with diverse needs. It's so wonderful to have you here with us. Let's get into it. You were trained as an engineer and you worked for a while before shifting gears to full-time research. Could you tell us a little bit more about your journey into research and your interest in uh, participatory design? Sure, absolutely. Well, actually, I had quite a roundabout journey to get there. I was an engineer from very early on. I was one of those kids that started programming when they were nine years old. And I thought for a long time that I wanted to be an engineer and I wanted to do computer science. So I was studying computer science, but I found that I was much more interested in a lot of issues which I didn't feel were addressed either in my education or in any of the jobs that I had. So I was interested in sustainability and I was interested in development. And so it happened that I started working in this development sector, actually. And I worked for several years in the development sector, quite far away from technology. But then sort of gradually technology crept into my work as well, I guess, partially because I was interested in it and partially because I had the skills and trying to understand how do we work with technology in situations where perhaps it's a little bit distance from the typical areas where programmers or computer scientists work. So that particular time I was working with waste management and with waste pickers and I was working in various places in India and we were looking at how do we employ technology to support uh, the work that waste pickers do with collecting waste, recycling waste, and so on. And from there, when I started thinking about how do we apply technology in these situations, I understood that I needed a lot more tools than the things that I had had initially in my training, which involved things like how do you program or how do you build software? But I also needed to understand a lot about how this would fit into the everyday life of the users that we were looking at. And that's sort of where I came to participatory design. And I gradually, through my mass work that I did as part of my master degree, and later on when I was doing my PhD, understanding when we're looking at technology in such situations and how do we understand what technology does or how technology fits into, in this case, it was waste pickers, but perhaps farmers or anybody else's lives and work and involving them in those processes through participatory design is just one of those approaches that I believe is works well, but is also important because it helps people who normally are not asked to influence technology to actually participate and influence technology. Yeah, it only makes sense to involve those impacted by technology in the design and creation process. Exactly. And it's both for me. I mean, often in participatory design, we talk about it as a process and it's something that I've experienced myself. It's a process of mutual learning. It's a process where I learn a lot about the people and their situation that are influenced by the technology that I'm working with and where those who are influenced by the technology also learn about how the technology works, what the technology can do, how it may fit, and also how they can shape technology to their own interests or needs. Yeah, that sounds about right. Moving on, you teach the human interaction course. So drawing from your, whatever you've said so far about participatory design and your work on the field, could you maybe walk us through the course, what the objectives are and what you get the students to do? 
Yeah, absolutely. In the HCI course that is there with IIIT, the idea is that we introduce the students and the students introduce themselves to the process of interaction design, which is looking at a situation or context, similarly to what I did. And when I started becoming involved in technology, and you look at a situation or context, you seek to learn about that situation. And that's something we do through user research. And the students that take the human computer interaction course, they conduct their own user research at the beginning of the course in a situation or a context that they've decided that they want to focus on. And then you conduct the user research, you think about what have we learned about this situation? What are the kind of challenges, problems or opportunities that are there? And then think about from that, well, okay, what kind of design or change could we do in this situation? And then they go on to prototype that to actually try to imagine, well, what would the kind of technology be that we might introduce or perhaps changes to existing technology in the situation? So they prototype that, they create an idea of what it could look like. And then once they've prototyped it, they then evaluate it to understand, well, okay, the idea that we have, the prototype that we've created, how does it actually fit in with the problem that we studied? And maybe what does the users who are in that situation, what do they think about our proposed solution? So it's a course that builds very much around what students themselves want to work on and a context or situation that they find interesting. And then they go through this whole process of essentially going from maybe knowing very little about the situation all the way up to having designed some kind of solution or intervention and evaluated that ideally with users from the context. What they learn in this course is being very proactive and intentional about how you approach introducing or changing technology within any given situation. So it's really an approach to how do you start out and then go through this whole process whenever you're faced with thinking about technology in a new situation or context. And a lot of our objectives for the course is that students really have this, both have this overall approach that they could do whenever, in whatever other situation they're in, whether they go out into an academic research project or they go into a corporate project, but have that approach of interaction design with them and then have a series of different methods at each of these different steps that they could apply to, whether it's to study users or to develop prototypes or to evaluate prototypes. Are there any that stood out for you in particular? Obviously, all the projects are amazing. So I'll, I'll caveat with that. No, I think the students throughout, we've had this, I mean, I've been involved in this course now for this is the third year. And I think the students have come up with all sorts of interesting examples from things like there was one group who looked at the water coolers and the water distribution situation in the campus. Every year, we at least have one group that looks at access to personal hygiene products, especially menstrual products. Every year, somebody's looking at that. We've had people looking at fake news, basically trying to redesign or propose new designs for WhatsApp so that it could help deal with fake news better or help people identify fake news better. So we've had a wide variety of things and from people creating applications and websites from scratch. And again, not necessarily programming them, but creating prototypes that they can evaluate. I think that's really important that this is not a software development course. This is a course where you think about what 
kind of technology and what kind of design you do beforehand, before you go out and program or build something, and you have even evaluated it with users even before you've written possibly any line of code, and then you have already evaluated that with the users. So yeah, so there's been designs for apps, there's been designs for websites, there's been designs, yeah, as I said, for modifications to the WhatsApp interface, for example. So a wide variety of things. That's what's really exciting, that every batch there'll be a new set of things that people are interested in, a new set of context. So I get to learn a lot about a wide variety of context through the user research that the students are doing. That that sounds like a myriad of ideas just going on. Yeah. So moving on, when you talk about design, especially in the digital ecosystem, typically it is understood from the aesthetic perspective, like what should be the Mm. button, where should it be placed, etc. So do such aspects of design also fit into your course when you teach it or when you go about it? Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, we spend especially now in in pandemic times we spend almost all our days in front of panes of glass whether it's screens on our laptops our computers our smartphones and of course the thing we see and the most obvious element of outcome of the design is what's displayed on that pane of glass the user interface the colors the shapes of the buttons the shapes of the windows and this is important it is what's presented to you but that's the surface of course right that's really the surface and it's usually what people think about when I when you mention the word design oh well then they think about graphic design and the graphical displays and so on but I think that's really just the surface and we do talk to some degree about this in the course but what I try to emphasize in the course and also in my own research and and practice is that design is a lot more than that it's about questions like well even just starting from the start it's about questions about what is this problem situation what are the issues that are there? How do we understand and make sense of those issues? And how does technology fit in with it? So we have to go much further back and understand within a particular situation, how does technology fit into that situation? And that's really where the core questions of design comes in, because that's when you're designing what is technology going to look like and do in this situation? And that's much more fundamental question of design than the interface. And once you have those fundamental questions in place, well, then you start asking yourself, well, which type of user interfaces or which modalities? So is it text? Is it text input, keyboard and mouse? Is it audio input? Is it video? What are the kind of modalities that are involved here in interacting with this technology? And then you come to the question of, okay, well, if these are the modalities that we're going to use for interacting with this technology, then how do we shape those modalities? And that's partially when these graphical design elements come in, but that's much later in the process. And there are much more important fundamental questions that we need to ask ourselves. And even in a, if you're working on a desktop interface or on a website, sure, the graphical elements are really important and they're what the user, you know, through which the user interacts with the technology, but things like information design. So how do we design, lay out the content throughout an application or a website? What are the logical relationships and links between different parts of a website or an application? That's not got very much to do with the aesthetics of the application or with the graphical design, but it's really fundamental and matters a lot to the way that the user experiences or can access or make use of whatever it is that you're designing. So I think aesthetics matters, but the course that we're teaching is much more about thinking about these broader questions of what is it that we're designing? How do we go about it? What kind of technologies fit? How do we create an information and information design that 
fits to the needs of the users than it is about, well, which color should this button have? Sort of extending from what you've spoken about so far also, I think this design also to a certain extent reveals if the fix is technological at all or not. Yes. Yeah. So that I think is an important part of it. Definitely. And I think that's, it's the question that should always be there. And I think it's something we, we get into in this course and this can be a really tricky situation if you're let's say you're a student on a course or even if you're working in a company asking the question well what if not to design at all and I tell students that sometimes building an app or creating an interface or doing a website isn't the design that you need to do it could also be designing a new behavior a new interaction in this current course we had a discussion about vending machines for menstrual hygiene products and we talked about the redesign of them or how we can do them and I was asking the team whether is it because they had done a lot of user research and interviews so they had quite interesting findings from them and a lot of the findings point to the fact that it's not so much about the machine or about the access to the product as it is about having a comfortable space if you have to change your pad or anything like that and that's the question there is well maybe the answer isn't to design technology maybe the answer is just to make it easier to find safe comfortable clean spaces to be in where you can change your pad for example so yeah it is always those kind of questions sometimes it's it's not the question is to not design at all or the answer is to not design at all well it's comforting to know that someone's being nudged in that direction <laughs> this course was introduced primarily with the digital society master's program in mind yeah so how do you see hci fitting in within the digital society program objective yeah no i think the way that i see hci course is that a lot of the students in the digital society program learn a lot about the way the technology interfaces with society on various levels, like both on a level within different communities, even in relationship to individuals, and then up to the scale of geopolitical factors related to technology, socioeconomic and geopolitical factors of technology. And the way that I see the HCI course fitting into this is we're trying to deal with the question, well, if we understand and we understand these various interactions that people are having with technology and the various ways technology influences society on a small scale, but also on a large scale, how do we translate that into thinking about when we're actually building new technologies or when we're engaging in new design projects, when we're trying to come up with well, what is it that information and an information system should do and how do we actually implement that in practice with this knowledge of the way the technology influences the broader socioeconomic concerns and so on. So it's really about trying to take the understanding that they, as students gain throughout the various courses they're doing in the master program and then seeing, well, how do we turn this into generative design practice? So by generative, I mean, when we're creating something new or we're modifying a technology or we are asked to prepare specifications for a new technology, then how do we translate some of these broader concerns into practical design practice that is aware of, of the broader issues that are going on? And I think that's sort of the goal. And that's sometimes really difficult. I know that it took me a very long time, even though I had worked in the development development sector and I had quite a lot of years of experience both in the technology sector as well as in the development sector but it took me quite a long time to really understand well okay well how do I then go about combining these two understandings I have one of sort of the challenges of technology and development 
and one of actually practically engaging in design. And there are certain conflicts there, there are certain challenges there. And so it is a challenging proposition, but it's something that we're trying to introduce and also build an interest for within this course. So I'm hoping students later on can take that forward in professional life or in other situations with, with technology and technology design. So you also seem to be well acquainted with the conflicts and the challenges that come with having this kind of diverse understanding of technology and development and implementing them. So having mm-hmm. that HCI seems to encourage a more user-driven approach to the design of digital interventions. Um, so do you see this paradigm being appreciated or adopted in the IT sector? Well, maybe I'm not the right person to speak on behalf of the whole IT sector. That's probably another person than I. But I think in a broad sense, increasingly, the understanding that involving users in design processes and when creating new technology and and ensuring that users have influence over technology design is becoming something that more people pay attention to, whether it's in the IT sector, whether it's in government, whether it's in any other sectors. It's not a new idea. I mean, the core of participatory design is, or the starting point, really, a lot of the early work came from Scandinavia in the 1970s and 80s, where they were looking at computing in workplaces, in industrial workplaces and in hospitals, and trying to understand, well, how does this change the work? At that point, it was driven by labor unions that they wanted to have concrete ideas for how they could approach digital technologies entering the workplace, but wanted it in such a way that it wasn't just driven by the interests of management or the interests of shareholders, but was actually also including the interests of workers within these workplaces. And from that kind of participatory design spawn in its many forms, and there are people in participatory design who is more interested in that egalitarian aspects of design and the kind of rights of people to have an influence over technology that affects them. And there are others who are more into, who see that, well, if we approach technology in this way, we end up with better products. We end up with products that people want to use. We end up with products that people find better suited for what they're trying to achieve with technology. And I think that's for many people probably an easier starting point to say, well, involving users in design actually results in products that are better targeted towards the actual needs of those that are going to use it. And therefore, we'll see greater uptake, we'll see less money wasted in building things that nobody will use or in building things that are the wrong things to build. So that once it's actually put, once you actually install the system in a hospital, you won't face a situation where that system doesn't do what it needs to do or doesn't fit. (laughs) And with involving users in design, oftentimes these kind of concerns will be raised really fast. I mean, I remember an example from Sweden where we have a social security number where the last four digits, like the first six digits are our birth dates, but the last four digits are really important to identify an individual and they're unique to every individual. So the combination of a birth date and four digits is unique to every individual in Sweden and it's really important. And they built a hospital system where occasionally these four digits weren't visible or weren't saved. And that was obviously a disaster. And uh, the developers were not Swedish. They were from another country. They were from England, I think. And had they involved users through the design process, such an obvious error would have been spotted just the first time anybody showed a potential prototype or a potential screen to 
new potential users, they would have immediately seen this because that's such a core thing of their usage. But that's not how the system was designed. It was designed through an RFP process with requirements and so on without involving users. And you end up wasting, I believe, on the order of tens, if not hundreds of millions of pounds. So I think there's a very pragmatic argument that I think a lot of people have in the last maybe couple of decades really begun to understand that there's a very pragmatic argument for involving users. And it's well worth the cost to spend time doing user research and spend time prototyping and evaluating with users. And then on the other side, I think there's a political argument, which I think is maybe quite clear to the people who are in the Digital Society program who've been talking about it in their other courses. There's a political argument for why people should have the right to influence the technology that is going to have an impact in their lives. So I think that back to your original question, what we learn in this course really is a skill set of how to approach design of technology and how to involve users in those processes. And yeah, as I said, there's a real pragmatic argument for why the IT sector requires these skills. And there is a great demand for people who understand user experience, for people who can do evaluation, for people who can build out prototypes and evaluate them in the IT industry. And I think a lot in the startup space, even this, the idea that in the startup space, the last few decades have come up that startups should not go out and just build technology, which they don't make. Maybe startups should not spend two years behind closed doors building a technology that they then launch and then find they have no demand for. Rather, they should build a minimal viable product and then very quickly go out and find user demand and validate that this is actually what users want. And a minimal viable product is essentially a high fidelity prototype. It's essentially where this course kind of ends up. At the end of the few months that we spend in this course, students have built a high fidelity prototype and that's essentially your minimal viable product. So I think, especially in the startup space, this has become really apparent. And I think in other parts of the IT industry, it's becoming more and more clear that we need these kind of approaches. Otherwise, what happens is we spend a lot of time, a lot of money building technology that's just not right right for what the users want or need. And looking at like, I'm a software developer also looking at the parallel movement in software development, which is the agile movement. Agile comes from very similar realizations. It comes from the understanding that design and building software is this future looking activity. And we need to work iteratively to really understand what kind of software, what kind of technical functionality and what kind of interfaces do we need and constantly validate that with potential clients, potential users, and so on. Hmm, That was a very concisely put response, I would say. In continuation, if I may, I would like to know how these things play out when you yourself carry out research, especially having just worked on the weather forecast project. How do these things come into being when you carry out your research? Yeah, so my work has, when I say that maybe you shouldn't ask me about the IT sector, it was a few years since I worked in the IT sector directly. So my research work and also my other work when I was employed for the last soon to be almost 15 years has mostly been within the area of development. I think one of the things that we're seeing is that the need for design and the need for approaches to technology has moved well beyond the IT sector as technology has become completely pervasive in kind of every 
every, everybody's lives and started to influence things like development work or work with environmental sustainability or whatever it might be. I mean, as I said, I started work with waste pickers. So it's influencing their lives and the way that organizations built around supporting them wants to apply technology. So technology has moved beyond the IT sector and other organizations where the government development sector organizations need to understand how we approach design and development of technology. So I've been working for now nearly six years, I think, together with an organization that works with sustainable agricultural development. So their main tasks are to look at livelihood of smallholder farmers and understand how they can support them in ways that are both economically sustainable for the farmer so that their livelihood is guaranteed, but also ecologically sustainable from the perspective of ecosystem that the farm exists in relationship to kind of broader movements like climate change. How do we ensure that livelihoods of farmers are sustainable in that sense as well? One of the projects we started a couple of years ago was looking at weather weather forecasts and weather information and also agricultural recommendations linked to those weather forecasts. So the question is being, well, we, we have the technology to create weather forecasts for five days. And those forecasts are reasonably accurate nowadays. And we also know that farmers face a lot of challenges. Traditionally, weather didn't change that much. Every year has some variation year by year, but within somebody's lifespan, or at least within a few decades, you more or less were guaranteed that summers would begin at a certain point, more or less. They would have these characteristics of so-and-so temperatures, of these kind of weather events like summer storms. Like in, in here in West Bengal, we have these evening time summer storms. After a really hot day, we get an evening summer storm and it's fantastic. Everything cools down by 10 degrees and we get rain and so on. And these were predictable events. They were common predictable events. So in almost every farming community, there would be some form of farmer's almanac, whether it's a orally or written down or whatever. And that's because it was predictable. But with climate change and with what's going on right now, that predictability is increasingly not there. Farmers need more sources to be able to adjust and plan their agricultural activities. And so we wanted to develop a system like this. And we worked together with the organization who had already introduced a similar system in another region. And we worked together with them to understand that system, understand how it fit in with the communities, how they made sense of the weather data that was available, how they turned that into actual agricultural practice, where there's decisions about when to sow, how to sow, or maybe other kinds of decisions like how to handle their livestock. Or in another situation, whether to send your kids to school or not. If it's going to be 45 degrees and you have to walk 5 kilometers, 10 kilometers, or even 20 kilometers to school, maybe that day when it's extremely hot, you don't send your children to school because it's not safe. So there can be a wide variety of decisions that farmers can make on the basis of weather forecasts. But that has to be made in such a way that there's a process there for them that they can take that weather forecast and actually make it practical and actionable for themselves. And certain ways of doing it, whereas it's maybe displaying it on a screen or sending an SMS may not be so effective because yes, the information might be there, but you need more than that. You need more than just displaying the information to be able to make use of it. So to understand questions like this, and this is the same I talked about with the waste pickers, understanding situations like the questions like this, for me, the easiest way is to involve users and involve people very close to the situation in the design process. So I can take the role of providing 
providing some resources, some technical skills as required. But it's really important for me that in order to make it work for the specific community, you need to have people close to or within the community work with it. So in the new system we designed, which was in West Bengal, one of the things that we did was that we identified a few stewards for the system. And these stewards were people from the community and from the local field office of the organization that were involved in agriculture in their own areas and had a very deep understanding for both the agricultural practices of the local area, as well as for the community practices, like questions like, where is it important that we make sure this information is available? How do we formulate, how do we translate the information so that it not just translated into Bengali, but also translated into words and ways of presentation that makes sense and can be easily adopted and used by the target community. So we had these stewards and initially we focused on them, their understanding of the weather patterns. So we had these kind of rain gauges and thermometers and hygrometers that they could use themselves to track weather patterns in their community and also help them identify and discuss externally available weather data. So what you can get from the meteorological Indian Meteorological Department and so on. We spent the whole, the first few months just on that, you know, interpreting and collecting and making sense of weather data themselves. And once those stewards were more comfortable with this, they could then start disseminating and distributing weather information and weather data and eventually also generating agricultural recommendations and distributing them to their communities as a whole. And that's quite powerful because then when somebody in the community sees this weather data, they can then go walk up to the steward and they can say, hey, you say it's going to rain 200 millimeters on Friday. That's a lot of rain. What does that mean? Oh, is this accurate? What can I do with it? And they can then help to discuss both the issues, things like complex issues, such as the accuracy of forecasts, how to forecast operate. And they can also discuss, well, okay, here are some mitigation strategies that you might want to think about. And that's not just them teaching others. It's more of them engaging in a conversation with people from their own community about how do we make use of it and help spreading ideas perhaps from one village to the other that, okay, well, I had a chat with somebody in this village who said, well, oh, it's going to rain a lot. Well, then I better do this and this and this. And somebody else in the other village would then be able to pick that up and they could kind of disseminate the information like that. So these are the kind of ways that we involved them. And, and I think that this approach had some real strengths. We had a cyclone last year. We had two cyclones actually during this project. We had Bulbul and we had Amfan. And before these cyclones, one of the things that happened, especially the first time, was that the steward noticed that there was a huge amount of rainfall predicted in, and this was Bulbul, so it was in November, when it typically doesn't rain that much. So they saw, oh, wow, there's a huge amount of rainfall. Is something wrong with the forecast? Is this actually going to happen? And if it's actually going to happen, why hasn't somebody said this is a potential disaster? And he brought that up and he could himself identify he wasn't just somebody who published data or there wasn't just a system that gave this data directly to farmers, but there was a steward in between who knew how to interpret this and could spot something that was definitely problematic and then bring it up with us. And we could all have a discussion within the organization as well as with us as researchers. How do we engage with this and how do we deal with the situation that has cropped up? And I think that's kind of where participatory design approaches like this really matter because what they do is not just create a system that is more tailored to the user's need, but it also creates the skill among the people that are involved in the design effort to continuously design and redesign the system. So in this case, we had to think about, well, if the system faces an emergency, in this case, a cyclone, well, then how do we respond to that through the system? 
And that's a kind of a redesign activity. In the end, the outcome of the design is that he writes something new on the display board that we use to the system to disseminate it. He disseminates some new information. That may seem like a small design change, but it was a design change that him and the organization could come up with themselves and had the skill to identify there was a design need and then design a solution to it. So, yeah, so I think that's that's how we've engaged with users in that project. And what happens when you do that kind of end user engagement or participatory design? Right. Also, very clearly, there is agency involved for the end users. They can claim their design as their own and go about it. Exactly. I mean, I mean, when you explore such development contexts like the one you just mentioned, there's always a chance that the end users may not be receptive towards the new technology, that digital technology that you're, that you're posing. So HCI practitioner who aims to design a user-friendly technology, how do you deal with this kind of maybe non-cooperation in some way when Mm -hmm. met with some kind of resistance from the end users? I have a little story about this. So as part of my PhD research, I was sitting down with a group of farmers. I think we were having tea and we were talking about uh, somebody was introducing my research that I was doing and we were having a chat. And this one farmer, very senior, very well-respected, very knowledgeable farmer. He leads the local farm group. He said, how much did it cost you to travel here? And I, I live in West Bengal, but I did travel regularly from the UK because my PhD was in the UK. So he said, how much did it cost for you to travel here? And I said, maybe 50,000 rupees to travel. And he said, hmm, I think actually the best thing you can do in this scenario is don't build any technology at all. Just take that money, give it to other farmers groups, and we can make use of it in a much better way. And he's not wrong. I don't think he's wrong. I think he has a very good point that technology design project, whether it's research, and here it was the flight cost, but it can also be the cost of the technology or the investment in consultants to develop that technology. Sometimes those funds, especially in the development context, could be better spent elsewhere. And I think that's an issue. If you're working in a development context, you constantly have to engage with and think about. But I think it also comes down into other technologies as well. We Many people raise the question, do we need more technology to do things? Is it really necessary to involve technology in these processes? Or would we just be better off not designing? We're back to that question of the answer is not to design. And I think that's something that you have to relate to engage yourself. I think fundamentally at the end of the day, I can see that there can be broader benefits or there can be direct benefits that may not be immediately visible to any user. So sometimes you want to persist with your project despite maybe getting some resistance or so on. But I think there's also a lot of situations where as a practitioner, you may say, well, the technology that that the users don't want, can that ever be a user-friendly technology? That doesn't sound very user-friendly. That sounds more user-hostile. And I think we should listen very, very carefully to resistance from users. I say that when people say, oh, I don't want to use that, or I'm not using that technology, or if you go out and you do user research and you ask them about some particular thing, they say, oh, no, 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 I, I would never use that. I, I tried it, but I found that it, I didn't want to use it. That's a great thing. Like sometimes you get scared of an answer like that. I think that's a great answer because it really helps me understand what about this designer technology doesn't work for this person or this group of people. And we can, that's a, that's a great start to think about how do we change the technology? Or maybe that, that avenue for technology is not the right way to go. Maybe we should try something completely different, or maybe we should put our talents to use 
elsewhere in another situation with some other groups. Now, that's a bit of an idealistic answer because, of course, when I was doing my PhD, I have external pressures. And I have an end goal. I'm self-interested in the sense that I want to have a PhD. And I also have pressure from my university to produce some research. And if I was working in a company, I would have pressure from the company to going back to my CEO or my CTO and saying, hey, the answer is let's not build this technology. That's probably not going to be a very acceptable answer in many situations. So that's where design becomes a process of negotiation. And that's something we talk a little bit about in the HCI course as well, that this is a negotiation. And as a designer, as an HCI practitioner, I think your task is often within organizations or within an academic setting even, becoming the advocate for the users and for the interests of the users within that process. So that means that sometimes you cannot completely remove the technology or you cannot say, oh, we, let's not do this at all. But at least you can act with your knowledge and with your experience of the user's resistance, you can act as an advocate for their interests within that context. Practically, I know when I presented my research originally at the university, I got an answer, well, how is this computer science? How is this technology development? You're talking about using very, very simple tools and technologies, WhatsApp and whatnot. And I think for me, then the advocacy for the users becomes arguing that the field of ICT and development should think of this as innovation, should think of this as its task rather than try to build some fancy expensive technology that relies on consultants and whatnot. And that becomes my advocacy role. So I may not say nobody should do ICT in development. I think people should do ICT in development, but I may argue then for something that I believe is more in line with what users want or potential end users need. So that becomes my job. And more often than not, those who are envisioning development are very separated from those who are actually impacted by it, right? Yeah. So drawing from that is HCI is premised on deep engagement with users and often in their everyday settings and environment. How have things changed within the field in the last one year or two, especially because of COVID? Well, I think it's incredibly challenging I mean, I can see that for users, I can see that in students, I mean, I can see that for the students, I can see that in my own work. Of course, it's incredibly challenging to reimagine deeply engaged interpersonal research when interpersonal interactions involves risk for everybody involved. That is an incredibly challenging thing. And it is true that many of the things that we typically do as part of a user research project or as part of a participatory design project is much, much more difficult to do in that typical way if we face the restrictions that we do, such as around the pandemic now. And I think there's two elements of that. One element is to understand that it's not always the case that it is the time to introduce new technologies or to work with these technology design projects. Sometimes it's just the time to focus on other things. I know in my master degree research project, I faced a situation where one of the groups that I was working with in their area, a drought was called. And that meant that the agricultural community was under deep, deep stress at that time. And it also meant that many, especially the men, had to migrate far out of their local area to be able to get work and to be able to feed their families. And in that situation, my, you know, even though I had invested quite a lot of time traveling to that region, spending time understanding uses, understanding what's specific in that context, I said that, well, at this point, here is where my master program stops. 
for that particular region, I did work with another community so I could still do my research program. But in the situation of drought, similarly to in a situation of pandemic, certain activities aren't really going to be the right activities to do or the right activities to happen. That said, I think there are some, one of the things that I think that a lot of people have spent in the field has spent a lot of time is looking at, well, okay, we're facing these constraints. We can't meet each other face to face. Now we have to be really creative about the methods that we use to reach out to people. How do we engage virtually? How do we engage with using other tools to be able to still do this kind of research? And I think a strength for HCI is that since it's quite a young field, our methods are not so set in stone. And because we have a lot of interactions with, with people from creative fields and creative fields are part of HCI, there's a lot of intermixing between these disciplines and means there's a lot of creativity and thinking about different methods. And a lot of HCI work and a lot of HCI publications actually build on coming up with creative methods of engaging people in design. So I think one thing we can do in this pandemic is redirect our efforts to really work with the way that people can engage with each other despite there being a pandemic. I mean, the first task in the HCI course this year was to keep shared diary where people talked about how did they connect with each other with technology through the pandemic. So we did a kind of diary study of this. And then we worked with that material to kind of try and understand what are the ways that people are engaging with technology and connecting with each other, even though the fact that we can't meet each other. And that's a way both to use of research, but it's also a way to kind of try to innovate a little bit around the methods that we do to do user research. So it was kind of a picture diary on smartphone. You could submit pictures on your smartphone and so on. So I think that's where CI has some strengths of working under a situation like this, and perhaps where a lot of focus has been spent and also where we need to spend focus going forward, thinking a lot about, well, we have a new set of constraints. Okay, now how do we engage with each other, engage with technology, design technology? What are the kind of methods we're using? What are the kind of approaches within this? In the near future, over the next few months, what plans do you have laid out for your research? <laughs> One of the things that I've been trying to do with the organization is to make sure that I'm there to support any needs with the people that I've been working with previously in the action research so that they can also better cope with the pandemic and cope with the constraints that it's brought about. And I think that's something that you want to continue. And it is one of the strengths of this participatory design or what I would call action research approach that I tend to use is that an action research program never really ends. The idea is for the activities to continue, but to find new ways and new activities to do. So that's something that's continuing. Another thing that I want to look into and something that I want to work on is building on the work that I've been doing so far, trying to create a little bit of more ongoing infrastructure for doing this kind of engaged participatory design and action research work, both within agriculture, but perhaps within slightly other fields as well. And something that we have discussed with the organization that I collaborate with is kind of trying to gradually build up a lab where it would be more of a lab where it's not so much the kind of traditional lab in a university, but more of a kind of a meeting space where you can come together, different organizations, as well as different researchers and come together and plan technology-based action research programs for different purposes and run them in this way where we're kind of, we're engaging with groups of communities of users. We're thinking about how do we design for them? We're coming up with new ideas and new approaches and then continuously evaluating them so that we can build more more programs 
perhaps not replicating what we've done, but creating more smaller programs throughout this. And there's a lot of ACI practitioners that work in this way through approaches that are called living labs, which we've seen across the world, which I think is a really interesting approach to go beyond that individual participatory design project into kind of a series of projects that may happen in a region or with a, a couple of different communities and so on. So I think that's where it, what it will go next to build that sort of infrastructure. A lot of concisely outlined points, <laughs> very valid ones, and all of your future plans sound fantastic. And uh, we wish you all the best with. Thank you very much. In the near future, thank you once again for joining us on this yeah. podcast today. It's great having a talk. Yeah, yeah, it was great to talk to you. Uh, for the listeners who are interested to learn more about uh, Linus's work uh, or research or any specific paper, you can find the links in the description of this episode. Thank you all for joining us on this episode of Technology Together. Thank you, Linus. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. This is Swati signing off and we'll be back soon with another episode exploring how we can shape the vision of technology together.